Dueling Genre Productions presents. Oh my god, do you see that? When a freak accident strikes McKinney City, ordinary citizens are given amazing abilities. I can move things with my mind. Oh my god, I'm flying. I can fly. I can teleport and I can fly. Super senses. What, like Daredevil? We are just playing fast and loose with this whole science thing today, aren't we? Now, there are villains. Billy, when you have an arch nemesis, do you just kill them immediately? No. You tie the ropes just loose enough so that they can keep escaping. That way, when you finally do win the day, you can sleep well knowing that you rose to the challenge. Your brain works differently than other people's, doesn't it? And heroes. Leah Markowitz, Gwendolyn Allen, Jeffrey Gibson, Mindy Gibson, Simon Holt, Splendid, you're all here. I'm going to make you all into superheroes. Screw it. Let's go save the day. The Powerful. After I drain everyone here, McKinney City will be mine. I'm going to show this whole city what real passion truly is. And the underdogs. You're all imagining me as a singing, dancing chipmunk right now, aren't you? The people in that store need help, and we can help them in a way no one else can. We have great power, which means they're our responsibility. I mean, Jesus, what's the point of having five freaking Spider-Man movies if we can't even learn to do that? Geek by Night, an original podcast series about five friends running a comic book store with superpowers. You're really going to keep running a comic book shop while trying to be superheroes? It might not always be easy, but I think the world could use a few more underdogs. Available at DuelingGenre.com and podcast apps everywhere. Dueling Genre Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we are discussing Kubo from the film Kubo and the Two Strings. And joining us is Brandon Uscio from the Phantom Podcast. Hey, guys, how's it going? Great. And welcome back, Brandon. Thank you. It's always good to be here. We love our returning guests. And uh, listeners, we all recommend you go over and check out the Phantom Podcast. We have had all the regular hosts of the Phantom Podcast and many of their regular guests on to the protagonist podcast. <laughs> There's a lot of cross-pollination that's happened at this point. So uh, Kubo is was a request sort of from you, Brandon. Is that right? Kind of. I th- Okay, so here's the thing about you guys. You guys are so wildly successful that, you know, <laughs> I have conversations with you guys two years ago. Like, this, was, this is a really cool movie. I think around the same time we were talking about Hook, I was also like, I loved Kubo. And... <laughs> It's taken you guys this long to get to it because you have so many awesome patrons. Uh, I think another factor may be that we only talk about one movie a month. Yeah. <laughs> so it yes. feels like a really long time <laughs> It may have been ago. two years, but that's only 24 movies ago. Yeah. Only 24 movies. You had you had really important movies like Big Trouble in Little China. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, but like Todd does a really good Jack Burton. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, moving on. (laughs) (laughs) So we are talking about Kubo and the Two Strings, which is a 2016 stop-motion film based on a story by Shannon Tindall and Mark Hames with a screenplay by Mark Hames and Chris Butler, and it was directed by Travis Knight, and Kubo was voiced by Art Parkinson. And as we just said, this was somewhat of a recommendation from Brandon. So, Brandon, how did you first come to Kubo and the Two Strings? 
The very first time that I came and saw Kubo and the Two Strings was in August of, was it 2015 when it came out? Uh, or 26, it may have been 2016. 2016 anyway, yeah. the, the year that it came out, I guess it hasn't been two years. I, sorry about that, guys. Uh, <laughs> but no, the, the month that it came out, my dad said to me, I've got to take you and your boys at the very least to go see this. And so the whole family loaded up into a movie theater and tried not to annoy the people around us while we watched this with little children. <laughs> And how was the film received by your your children? My kids loved it. Uh, the very next Salt Lake Comic Con that we had, they both wanted to cosplay as Kubo. And my sister, who's an amazing seamstress, it's what she does for a living. She whipped up a couple kimonos with them and did wow. the the beetle on the back and the little beetle stamps all over the and the eye patch. Yeah, uh, they we didn't do the eye patch. My no. my one son was clumsy enough at the time. I was worried about removing <laughs> depth perception. <laughs> That's awesome. Having uh, recently worn an eye patch for a costume, I can say that battle is real. <laughs> <laughs> now I need pictures. <laughs> Over oh, uh, the holidays, my family has started a tradition of doing a Christmas Eve mystery dinner for anyone who's in town. And this year's <laughs> name was Steampunk, and I, I had a Steampunk eye patch. <laughs> You're just adding, I need more pictures now. That's all there is to <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> There was a cool uh, episode of Mythbusters when they were talking about pirates and eye patches. Did you guys see this? Oh, I tested that very Mythbusters theory using the Did eye you? patch because I had to run downstairs and grab something. It worked. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So the Mythbusters theory of the pirate eye patch wasn't that pirates had really hurt eyes. It was because they kept going below decks and it took too long for eyes to adjust. So if you have one <laughs> eye under an eye patch, you go below decks and you switch the eye patch over to the other eye. The eye that's been in the dark gives you much better vision than the eye that's been out in the sunlight. Uh, and so you see better. And so I had to run down and grab something from the storeroom. And I remembered that and switched my <laughs> eye patch over and definitely had better, better perception. I'm so glad that you did that. That's amazing. So, Joe, you had not seen this film before today. No, uh, like I, I remember when it came out, it got great reviews. I thought the trailers looked beautiful and I wanted to see it, but I never got around to it. Um, one time when uh, my brother, John former guest of the show was in town. I know he showed my kids the film. He had it on DVD, but I was busy and, and I didn't even catch it then, but now it is on Netflix. Uh, I knew it was coming up. And so I watched it for the first time uh, today. And then as I was writing the summary, I, I had it on again and I remind me to come back and talk about some of the, the things that I caught watching it just like right after each other. Mm -hmm. um, the, the beginning of the film is so different once you know the full story, even though it worked and it was beautiful storytelling and the visuals were amazing. The first time I was watching it, the meaning was so different the second time. Yeah. I saw this film uh, the first time on an airplane um, flying to Spain and I had, it was the worst I mean, so the worst way to fly uh, across the ocean is to not have anything to watch. The second worst way to fly is when they put one screen up and they just put a movie on and you you don't get to pick what it is and it's something horrible and you can't even see it because it's really far away. The third worst way to fly across the uh, ocean is when you have your own TV and it only works about. 50% of the time and you can't like you can't scrub forward you can't scrub back you can't anyway it was bad I was uh, that was me and watch trying to watch Kubo and it kept cutting out and I missed the first part of it and I was really tired and I remember I liked it and I thought this is a really great film and it deserves to be watched um, you know <laughs> in, in better circumstances and today was the day that I did that and my goodness what a film I really really like this well, a little bit of trivia about Kubo and the Two Strings. This was produced by a film company called Leica. 
Um, and that is a film company named after the Russian dog that went into space uh, that focuses solely on stop motion movies. Kubo and the Two Strings is their fourth film. They had previously made Coraline, Paranorman, and Box Trolls. And Leica is owned by Phil Knight. Todd, do you know that name? Uh, it's not a, is it owned by Phil Knight? Yeah. I thought it, I thought it was owned by Travis. No, Travis is, just... is the CEO. Oh, okay. But uh, Phil Knight is one of the co-founders of Nike. Wow. And his son Travis is the CEO uh, and uh, of the company, and Travis also directed this film. He, he uh, directed Kubo and the Two Strings. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, this film has quite the voice cast. Um, first up, Art Parkinson, who voices Kubo. He's most well known for being in Game of Thrones, but the other voice actors include Charlize Theron, Matthew McConaughey, uh, Ray Fiennes, Rooney Mara, and George Takei. And uh, the movie has a 97% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And that's not bad. If you play a fantasy box office game, you really hope for your movies to get into those upper 90s. <laughs> what is bad about it? If you look at the actual box office score, I want to say I haven't looked at it for a while, but I want to say it barely broke $15 million. No, it, it made $48 million in the U.S. Yeah. 48 in the U.S. Okay. That was yeah. there was an, oh, maybe that made an opening weekend. It's opening weekend, I think, was $16 million. That's okay. crazy. Or something wrong with those. Uh, yeah. So it made... Film. Oh yeah! Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Come on, people! It made forty-eight million at the U.S. box office and another twenty-one million at the foreign box office, which isn't huge. I mean, that's not uh, you know breaking any records. But at the same time, if you're a small movie company that only makes uh, you know a film every uh, two or three years, I think you could stay in business with fifty million dollars every two or three years. If somebody gave me fifty million dollars, I would not. Uh, I would not tell them. I don't want your $50 million, but, but $48 million is like about as much as the Power Rangers movie made, which is not great. I can tell you the emoji movie last year, which I know quite well, cause we had it in our fantasy box office picks. <laughs> I had that one. Uh, it made almost $90 million, only 3% on Rotten Tomatoes, but $90 million for the emoji movie. Come on, parents, take your children to see Kubo and the two strings. <laughs> and not, not the emoji, the emoji movie. movie. <laughs> yes. What I love about this is the guys who just barely watched it for the first time. Are saying, I know. saying go see it in theaters years ago. This is so true. Uh, so this had a production budget of sixty million dollars. So the fifty million dollars versus sixty million production budget—that's oh, that, that, that stings a little bit. Hopefully, it's fair. still making in residuals on DVDs and its uh, Netflix deals, streaming rights. To be fair, I don't see hardly anything in the theaters, so it's not like I I was I saw a million movies in two thousand six. You didn't go out and see the Emoji movie, right? I did not. No. No, no. Nope. All right. Uh, well, as we said, though, listeners, this movie, if you haven't seen it, which, again, based on the box office, maybe some of you didn't catch it when it was in the theaters. It is available now streaming on Netflix. Uh, or, of course, there is the, uh, the DVD option through libraries or um, uh, or or for purchase. So uh, highly recommend this film if you have children. And also, if you don't have children, it's just a good movie. I really enjoyed watching it. So for anyone, I recommend Kubo and the Two Strings. Okay. Uh, before we move on, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening, and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would also like to support us financially, uh, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter monthly episodes in which we break down newly released, newly released films and trailers. Uh, and we discuss our fantasy box office that we, uh, the, we made those picks last week. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And now, Joseph, are you ready for the long synopsis? I'm ready. Are our listeners ready? If you must blink, do it now. 
All right. Our story opens with a woman sailing across the ocean at night. A giant wave, and I mean giant, threatens the small boat that she's on until she strums the strings on her shamisen. Am I saying that correctly, by the way? Shamisen. Shamisen? Okay. It's never actually said in the film. I only read about it as I was doing some research on this, and I thought, I don't know how to say that. (laughs) The shamisen. It's the the equivalent of a banjo. Okay. Okay. So she strums the strings on her shamisen and magically the instrument emits light that cuts through the wave and she rides through on calm waters. Briefly, another giant wave comes up from behind her and capsizes her. She is hurt, but washes us ashore where we see that she had a baby with her, a baby who is missing an eye. We jump ahead to when the baby is 12 years old. He and his mother live in a cave. Kubo is the name of this boy. He earns money by playing his shamisen for the villagers and telling epic stories. As he plays the shamisen, papers uh, he has fold up and become alive. They're origami-ish creatures that help to illustrate his story. There's a great line uh, in the movie where (laughs) these creatures that come alive and like the origami folds would be so intricate and amazing. Someone says, I think there are scissors involved. (laughs) Here's here's, here's the thing about these origami creatures. They actually are all real really possible oh my goodness no origami convention and every origami the boat may not be but every (laughs) every other like the night is uh, they have pictures of that night and then they've uh used plasticine over it and silicone and all that stuff but i actually think that's uh it's amazing but i believe it because i saw a museum exhibit of origami and i was just amazed by what is legitimately possible through folding paper uh, like dragon scenes like uh, landscapes and, and like you sit there and you study it out and you're like i don't i don't know how humans did that <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but uh yeah some of the so as he's as uh kubo is telling these stories this paper that's around him like comes alive and folds itself into shapes and figures um that animate his story uh for the villagers and uh the story that he's telling is about his father a samurai named hanzo and um i just need to throw out there that the tiny origami samurai warrior that represents hanzo is amazing to watch this is top-notch animation i just love it <laughs> So, like, it made me happy to see it on screen and moving around. Uh, Kubo's mom reminds him that he can't be out after sunset, and he never is. But when Kubo hears about a festival in the village when people are supposed to be able to communicate with deceased loved ones, he can't resist going and trying to communicate with his father. His father does not communicate back, and Kubo stays after dark. When night falls, two creepy, floating, masked women attack Kubo, asking what happened to his eye. They say they're his mother's sisters, and they've been looking for him for so long. His grandfather needs his other eye. When Kubo runs, they turn into smoke, and they chase him into the village. Kubo's mom shows up and tells him to find his father's armor. Then she summons some magic and touches a symbol on the back of Kubo's robes, and his robes then sprout wings, and he flies up into the sky before he blacks out. Kubo wakes up in a distant land where a talking monkey, who he calls monkey, is telling him that they need to find shelter before Kubo's grandfather can find them. Kubo remembers he had a wooden carved monkey that he called Mr. Monkey that he carried with him. Monkey is a girl, and she says that she was that little carved monkey. Kubo can still make his origami come alive, and the samurai figure directs him, uh, directs them where they need to go. Monkey insists that they stay focused on finding Hanzo's armor, uh, because that's all that can save Kubo. Kubo realizes that he grabs some of his mother's hair while she was saving him, and Monkey braids it into a bracelet for him. While walking, Kubo is grabbed by a giant beetle man who is called Beetle. Beetle is a sort of samurai who thinks he was trained by Hanzo, but he has some sort of amnesia and he can't really remember. And Beetle joins their quest. Side note, uh, just for the characterizations, Monkey is pretty serious and earnest and Beetle is hilarious and goofy, but he really wants to help. 
the next step of their journey is claiming the unbreakable sword from a gigantic living skeleton. It's dangerous. They fail several times, uh, but eventually Kubo finds the sword and the skeleton falls apart. This 100% reminded me of finding a big boss in Legend of Zelda video games. <laughs> <laughs> a part of me kept saying, shoot the eyes. It's always the glowing eyes that you need to go for, but it's not in this case. Uh, they tricked me. Uh, then they need to go reclaim the breastplate impenetrable. To do this, they need to cross the long lake while Monkey and Beetle argue like grownups. <laughs> Kubo plays his shamisen and fallen leaves float together to form a boat that they will use to cross the lake. I love the scene where so good. Monkey and Beetle can't agree on what to do. And so they keep telling him to go away so they can talk like grownups. And all they do is petty, you know, argue in a petty way. It's so great. This is one of those scenes that changes very much after your second yeah. viewing. Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, and I do have to say, this is another point where the animation is just so amazing on this uh, boat that is made out of uh, fallen leaves. Go watch this movie just for the stop motion. Uh, you'll be amazed at this. Uh, my daughter saw me watching this on Netflix and she came up and she's like, do you have the special features? Uh, I said, no, this is just on Netflix. She's like, the special features are so, so good. They show you how they made everything. <laughs> she got really into that. <laughs> it, that's all available on YouTube as well. There are so many people were involved in making that boat and they laser cut out the, uh, the paper that they made it with. They laser cut out all the leaves. So there was some crazy number of leaves, wow. like 16,000 leaves that they put together for that boat. All right, so now they're crossing the lake on this boat made of leaves. And halfway across the lake, Beetle and Kubo dive down to retrieve the breastplate, which is buried in the water. Underwater, they encounter a creature called the Garden of Eyes, which, if it makes eye contact, entrances you and reveals secrets. At the same time, one of Kubo's aunts attacks Monkey up on the leaf boat. And this fight, as they're fighting through the leaf boat and leaves keep floating away um, whenever it gets hit by weapons, it's just so good. Down in the water, uh, Kubo looks into one of the creature's eyes and he learns that Monkey is really his mom's reincarnated spirit. Up above on the boat, the aunt reveals that she is fighting her sister, whom she hates. Monkey is wounded but kills her sister. Beetle snaps Kubo out of his trance and they return to the boat with the breast plate on shore monkey reveals that she and her two sisters were sent by her father the moon king to kill hanso but she fell in love with hanso and moon king did not take this well kubo has a dream where a kindly old man tells him where to find his father's helmet when he wakes up they go looking for it there only to realize that this was a trap set up by the moon king the other sister arrives and reveals that beetle is really the reincarnated spirit of kubo's father beetle and monkey are killed uh trying to save kubo but this gives him enough time to play his shamisen and when he plays it he defeats his aunt the little paper samurai makes kubo understand that the bell at his village back home is actually the helmet that he's looking for kubo takes his father's uh, bowstring and he ties it into a bracelet which he puts next to his mother's hair on his arm then kubo breaks the third and final string on his shamisen which sends him out of the magical realm he's been in and back home at home uh the moon king appears and asks kubo for his eye. Kubo shockingly refuses. <laughs> and he tries to bite the Moon King, but the Moon King transforms into a flying centipede thing. Just think like the Chitari used when attacking New York City in the Avengers. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's actually based off of a prehistoric fish. 
Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so th- something like that actually used to exist. That is terrifying. Okay. <laughs> uh, Moon King <laughs> promises uh, that if he takes Kubo's eye, then Kubo will be a uh, Kubo will be immortal. Um, the fight doesn't go great for Kubo. He ditches the armor because it hasn't really saved him, and then he restrings his samisen with his mother's hair, his father's bowstring, and his own hair, and he gives a monologue that loved ones, memories, and stories are what make people immortal. And then he plays his shamisen, and the spirits of the villagers' loved ones appear and they protect Kubo and the villagers from the Moon King. Kubo plays again and the Moon King is washed over by Kubo's magic. He loses all his powers and appears before the villagers as a mortal man with no memory of who he was. They tell him a story about how he is the nicest, most kind man in the village who loves everyone and is loved by all. This makes him happy and he begins to act that way. At the next year's village festival, we see Kubo lighting lanterns for his parents as their spirits watch him and smile. The end. All right. Okay, good night, guys. <laughs> that's, that's such a good, uh, such a good story. Well, as I was watching it uh, for the first time, uh, I just want to circle back, and so I watched it, and I loved it, and then I left it on while I re- like restarted it to, to write the summary. And the opening scene when uh, Kubo's mom is being attacked by these waves in the ocean. He keeps cutting to shots of the moon, and all of a sudden, the moon has a super different meaning than when I started. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then when I started the movie, uh, knowing that his grandfather's the Moon King and that's who's hunting him and his mom. And so every time one of these giant waves is coming, it shows the moon. And at first you think it's just setting and it works as setting uh, for that first viewing. But so many things in this movie change on the second viewing. Brandon, you mentioned that uh, the relationship between Beetle and Monkey, once you know they're his parents, like so there's so many more layers <laughs> that open yeah. up. You watch them bicker and you're like, oh, that's that. Yep. Yeah, those are parents right there. That's married couple bickering, <laughs> married, couple, married couple bickering right there. So I have a funny thing to tell you, Joe. Um, so Santa Claus found in the uh, in the in the 375 bin at Walmart um, two films this year. <laughs> one one was Nacho Libre and the other is The NeverEnding Story. And Santa Claus could not pass up on either of those two. <laughs> wonders of modern filmmaking and uh so but my my kids have not seen the never-ending story and we still haven't seen it. we haven't had time to sit down and watch it and they keep saying dad we want to watch never-ending story and i keep telling them well we need to watch it together because it's it's kind of creepy and my daughter's <laughs> like come appropriate for children <laughs> come on it cannot be that scary and i'm like well i don't know joe dorowski thinks this movie is pretty scary so <laughs> So it's only when you stop to think about it. That's when it gets scary. <laughs> so my daughter says, so what's scary about it? And I said, well, you know, here's a little YouTube clip. So I showed her a clip of Gamorg, the, the, the wolf. And she was laughing hysterically. She's like, that is not scary at all. That is hilarious. And then, and then I said, okay, well, tonight we're watching Kubo and the two strings. And she goes, no, dad, that is a scary movie. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she said, you can tell Joe Dorowski that Kubo is super scary and Never Ending Story is not. So <laughs> what does she think is scary about Kubo and the Two Strings? I, I mean, I have some sense of what it may be, but the the mask, the, the mask sisters. Yes, that is a very creepy thing, which I have um, a story that I had never seen this. And I have a character that's a lot like those mask sisters. I was like, oh, <laughs> 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 that's my character design <laughs> yeah so, uh, so those uh those sisters every time they came onto the screen my little daughter who's three would like we were sitting on the couch watching it and she like curled up into a ball and like jumped onto my lap because yeah. she was like these are scary and yeah, it you know is very they good. are yeah I, i'm not gonna tell your your daughter she's wrong <laughs> <laughs> 
now I need a shorter, never-ending story. Dude, no, that's inappropriate. <laughs> so good. All right, so I think we all obviously like this film. And as I was watching it through the first time, I was just mentally thinking, as we often do on this, about the hero's journey. And this one just checks so many checks of the boxes every box. <laughs> for yeah. the hero's journey. Um, to the like the literal you know, other world <laughs> that they go to, uh, which fantasy films often do. Um, but I think that's one reason why the structure of this is so pleasing is um, this is writing that line so well that stories have to do of being familiar enough of the beats of the hero's journey, but unique enough that it feels new as, as you watch it. It doesn't feel derivative, even though we can kind of step back. And if we just abstract the story point, uh, beats of, you know, the young man, who crosses the threshold to a new world, has a mentor, gathers a fellowship, um, eventually has to lose his fellowship and do something on his own, and, you know, enters the abyss and comes out with new powers that he never had before, uh, <laughs> returns back, <laughs> returns back home uh, as a master of two worlds where he's now respected. Like, like it is the hero's journey beat for beat, but it's also so unique where I've never seen a movie like this before. Yeah. And, and, that blend is just such a wonderful mixture uh, to see. And I think it's why this movie, uh, you sit back and you watch it and just say, well, that that's a good movie. <laughs> I mean, you, you've, you've outlined it so well. It bears pointing out. I mean, like he, the first, so he, he, he crosses the threshold and he's on a mountaintop and then he goes into the belly of a whale, which <laughs> is like, I mean, these are all direct quotes from here of a thousand faces. So he goes into the belly of a whale and then he goes into a cave to fight and then he crosses a lake and then he goes down into the bottom of the lake where he comes across this eye, which is a, like one eye, which is a, a mirror, right? Which is what you find at the bottom of at the bottom of the circle. You find a mirror and then you die, which he does. And then you come back to life and you have magical powers. I mean, it, it's it's like, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> this is the hero's journey. Does he ever refuse the call, though? I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking back on the story. Kubo is always the one like, let's go find my dad. Let's go do these things. Let's go figure mm -hmm. out this sword. And it's more monkey that's saying, no, step back. It's like, I'm thinking about that scene where he, where they meet beetle and Kubo's like, let's go. And she's like, get back. You know, you never know what's going to happen. She seems to be more the one, the mentor seems to be more the one who's refusing the call. If he refuses the call, it would have to be before we I mean, have to be before he crosses the threshold before he crosses the threshold. So right. you would have to, I mean, you would read that early on. So it would be, him returning home every night before it gets dark, which is what he's supposed to do. So, I mean, it, it, okay. it's I, more of a, um, it's more of a, like he gets thrust avoiding into the threshold. <laughs> well, he gets thrust. So sometimes a, a hero's call comes in the form of like an invitation where somebody comes and says, I'm inviting you to do this thing. And then sometimes a hero just gets thrust into the journey. And that's what seems to happen here. I don't think that he really has much of a choice. It, 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 he's with his mom and she, you know, taps at the magic beetle and the wing sprout and he's gone. There's no, there's not really a chance for him to, to reject that call at that point. And then he's, he's in the other world. He's in the belly of the beast. There's no way to get out except. Yeah. At, at that point, as soon as he's gone across, would you, so I'm thinking about this, the old lady, her name's Kameo. It, when she keeps asking him to finish the story, do you think that might be the, the call to adventure right there. Come on, finish it. Stay here. Do these things. Finish your story. Um, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I suppose I, I like it. Yeah. 
<laughs> so as you watch this movie, there's several times where it talks about how at the beginning, how Kubo never finishes his stories, uh-huh. how the stories are still going on. And then at the very end, when he's talking to his parents, he says, you know, I'm not very good at telling stories. I go on for a long time. So here, I'll make this short. And then he finishes the story right then uh-huh. at the very end. Um, so I, th- I want, I think that's, I think that's a theme throughout the, throughout this movie where he is trying to tell this story and it's, and it's not finished yet. And so he can't finish the story until the end of the movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. And story is definitely one of the main themes that we get. I mean, that's his big final monologue. <laughs> um, story is really what immortality is about. <laughs> you know, it's that, that's how it can be achieved by leaving a mark and having loved ones who tell your story um, after you're gone. That's, that's the kind of immortality that we should be seeking. Not the kind that comes from stealing people's eyes, which no, no. <laughs> well, it's also the festival that, that's going on at that time is the a Buddhist festival. It's called Obon. And it is literally about that, about your ancestors coming home to visit with you so that you can remember them. The huge part is about remembering them. And so, because if we remember them, they don't die. It feels very um, Day of the Dead to me. My dad uh, took my boys to go see Coco, and Uh he told me told me the story. And as as I was watching Kubo, I'm like that. That sounds very familiar. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I'm more familiar with uh, the Mexican Day of the Dead celebrations, but it definitely had a similar feel about that. And I love that idea that um, you know I love stories that are about the power of story like that can be very self-reflexive and also self-congratulatory <laughs> in storytelling but when it's done well uh, it never fails to miss for me um big fish is another movie that yeah i love that um talks about the power of story um and and what it, what that can mean um for us as an audience but also um for the storytellers uh and what it means for our understanding of of like human relationships and i think this is one that really digs into the idea of story being significant for human relationships i think one of the the, jumping on that idea of stories there's a there's a really great part that talks about um small stories versus big stories and how um the the big stories are important the the basically like the hero's journey that's an important story. And the hero goes on a quest and does this big thing and faces monsters and builds a fellowship and gains magical powers. That's important. But then they also talk about the small stories um, about like a flower blooming or, you know, the wind on the whatever in the leaves of the trees. And they say those small stories are just as important as the big stories. And then they say um, before the quest, I can't even remember who it is that says it. It's, it must be his mom that says before the quest, you were still a hero. And it's because, because he took care of his mom every, Oh, it's, um, is it beetle that he's talking to? And he says, you know, what were you like before the quest? And he says, well, you know, I just kind of took care of my mom and I went to the village and I told stories. And then they say, before, before you went on this quest, you were a hero. And I like the way that it juxtaposes those two notions of hero that, one is the Joseph Campbell go on a quest uh, and become a Jedi hero's journey. And that that's what makes you a hero. And the other one is just being a good, decent person and, you know, taking care of your mom. That's heroic. Even, even if you never go on a, on a big, on a big thing. Beatles exact quote was, you know, something Kubo back when you were just, or back when you just told stories, before you went on this great adventure, 
you were still very much a hero. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I think it's a good, um, a good balance. Like you said, because uh, well, I mean, the power of the Cambellian mythology is that the, the, the hero's journey can be accomplished in a day of mm-hmm. going and doing something you've never done before. Like, like each stage of life is entering this new, you cross the threshold. Um, you know, when you go off to college, when you get married, when you have kids, when you get a new job, like all of those are the new thresholds and you're going to go through the cycle. But so often in our storytelling, it's only the big grand, you know, go destroy the, the one ring, go become a Jedi. Like you said, those are the hero's journeys that we talk about. But the reason those stories resonate is because we're going through these smaller versions of that every day. Yeah. So let me ask you a question then. It, I, on this last watching from, from today when I was watching it, I had an idea. And this lines up with my three-year-old daughter's other favorite movie, which is Boss Baby. Uh, man, I'll, <laughs> that would very well for me in the 2017 fantasy box office. <laughs> Overperformed where I had picked it. <laughs> so Boss Baby, the main character is a young boy that is, has this fantastical adventure in front of him. But most of the fantasy elements come from his own imagination. And he is very much an unreliable narrator. And you start the movie not sure what is real and what's not. And you end the movie and he's like, that's just how I remember it. Kubo yeah. very much feels like, because they, they use the theme of memory and forgetting things and doing things all throughout. Kubo also feels very much like Kubo could be an unreliable narrator. Like he, this, these things could be things from his perspective. Like, come on, really? Do you think a kid with a shamisen can, can make origami warriors fight these crazy fire breathing chickens? And, you know, in, in this world now, granted Travis Knight said, this is a fantastical ancient Japan. It is not the real ancient Japan. So in this world, yeah, maybe that's possible, but I, I feel like Kubo might be an unreliable narrator because the movie starts out with him telling the story. His voice is the first thing we hear, right? Yeah. And it's the last thing. And we see him uh, doing this kind of origami puppet show for for the villagers. So Hmm. (laughs) I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) Um, So as as unreliable narrators go, they're great stories. But I think this is how the how the story, how uh, Todd's talking about the small stories, how those kind of weave in. Maybe this is a story about a young boy who's dealing with a mother with Alzheimer's and after the mother passes away has to go live with the grandfather that he doesn't love who also has signs of Alzheimer's and is mm-hmm. dealing with things dealing with these smaller things and oftentimes in young people's heads they turn these small things into big epic stories in order to understand how to cope with them because they don't understand small nuances but they get big we've got to defeat the, the moon king stories <laughs> And I, I mentioned this film earlier, but it almost feels like I need to mention again now is Big Fish, um, which we haven't talked about in the podcast, but it has the storyteller versus the realist. And this, in that film, the storyteller is the father and the son is just very black and white. The world is what it is. And he hates the, all the exaggerated stories that his father tells and it's ruined their relationship. Um, and then at the end, at his father's funeral, all these people come and he sees the seeds of the, the father's stories in these people that are there that his father – exaggerated and, and tell these hyper realistic and well, completely unrealistic, um, you know, hyper exaggerated stories. Um, but 
the son realizes there was a grain of truth in all those stories. And it feels like some of our unreliable narrators uh, in, in these kinds of stories are maybe doing similar things where there's a seed of truth, but we as viewers maybe are, get invited to trim away and try and f- figure out what the core um, of the reality is, even as we can fully enjoy the um, heightened reality that the unreliable narrators um, invite us to go see. I feel like you've uh, like you've gone all Miracle on 34th Street on me now because that, like that's my interpretation of Miracle on 34th Street. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and uh, and now you've just done it with Kubo, um, which is I, I mean that's a really interesting interpretation, uh, which I like. Um, <laughs> so basically, what we're saying is, any movie that has a narrator, we can say is a dream. Is that what, is that where we're going? <laughs> I don't know. I I like to think of this as um like as fantasy and mm-hmm. and not as um like a dream. A a child's escape yeah. from a hard world. But I think that th- I, I think that your reading is is really uh, like good. It's a valid reading. It's kind of what Joe said to me when I <laughs> made up all of my <laughs> reasons for not being in love with miracle on 34th street this year. And he said, I have, I have nothing to say except that I choose the other interpretation. <laughs> um, I kind of feel that way about this. Like, I, I mean, I really like what you're saying, but, um, but like you almost convinced me. <laughs> well, and see, and here's the thing. This is, this is a half formed idea in my head. I don't think yeah. it's actually going to go too far. Cause I just noticed it tonight as I was watching this. And to be honest, the other interpretation is probably what the director was going for. But I mean, what would, tearing apart a story be like if we actually went with what the person who created the, the well i think art. i mean i think where you're i think where you're on is that it certainly serves this story serves as a metaphor for that thing that you're talking about uh which is um i mean all of that is spot on so the only thing that i would argue is if that's actually literally what's going on in this story i mean obviously it's a story it's not real <laughs> but if it were real um you know if, if we could look into that world would we see just a kid uh, with his with his mom that's sick and his grandpa that has Alzheimer's, or or would we, you know, did this thing actually really happen? Um, but but the way that it serves as a metaphor for growing up and and confronting these kinds of things, I think is spot on. Was there anything in the film that didn't quite work for you? I mean, I, I, I think talk this about film the deserves. End. I want to talk about the end of this film and the symbol that's, that's, the symbolism. That, okay, so we get this really strong binary setup between the world of the mother, which is, I mean, this is all like Jungian and Campbellian. Uh, so you have the world of the mother, which is uh, the night and the moon and the sea. And you have the world of the father, which is the sun. And typically in a hero's journey story, you'll see, and I, as I'm, as I'm talking my way through this, I think I can see what's going on here, but uh, you'll see them become what you said, Joe, master of both worlds, where it's not just the the night or the day, but it's both. You're the master of both the night and the day, or the moon and the sun. And I feel like when he confronts his grandfather, um, I was I there was a time where I felt like the symbols were becoming kind of slippery, um, and it was hard for me to to settle on what was really going on. But um, the helmet, uh, his dad's armor, is all decorated with sons Mm -hmm. and but he also uses his mother's magic which i which i hadn't thought about at the time but but that in that way then he's master of both worlds right because he's got his his father's armor that's all about the sun and the light 
and yet he uses his mother's magic, uh, which is, um, which is uh, the night. And then you the will movie, get yeah. uh, the music, which is a string from his mom, a string from his dad, and then his own string. And, and that's what uh, creates the real magic is when he's able to combine those things. So I like that. I like the ending. I, I really like that. And I, one of the things as you were describing that, that it made me feel like there was a metaphor too. And this is maybe because I'm dealing as, as a parent of biracial children. I'm biracial. My kids are biracial. My, my father's world is, you know, all sorts of Japanese culture, Japanese heritage. My mother's world, she's, she, she is European ancestry, but doesn't really attach to a culture as much. So she taught us more of my father's culture. So I feel like I'm very much in that world where my, my wife has very strong Danish roots and, and you know, you know, they, they came over with on the Mayflower, on the Mayflower basically, but they, but they still held on to their heritage and their traditions. So as we, as my children are going through this life, they are getting Japanese culture, heritage. Now I'm going to say Japanese American because I'm fourth generation born in America, but they're getting that side for me and the Danish side for my wife. And they have to figure out who they are. And that's where it's going to be more powerful. And so new year, new year's is probably the best example. New year's Eve. We go to my wife's family's house and we do fondue and we do a lot of things that they've been doing for years. And then New Year's Day, we go over to my parents' house and we've had a New Year's Day open house for the past 150 years in the Ushio family where <laughs> a couple hundred people come over to the house and spend time because the Japanese tradition is about New Year's Day. The things that you are doing on that day are the things that you will be doing for the rest of the year. So you want to be spending time with friends and family. You want to be spending time together in a clean home with Watching no debts. <laughs> you know what? That that would be perfectly acceptable. And, <laughs> but but I I feel like there is a point where the hero of the story and in my view right here the way you describe that the hero is my children. They're going to have to figure out who they are, and they've got the two strings of their mom and dad, and they but they have to have the third string that is them, which is uh -huh. going to be different from that as well. Uh, I don't know. Just what you were saying right there really made me think about how this is another analogy of, you know, people can be walking in two worlds. The hero's journey, what, big fantastical, really is a metaphor for each of our individual lives. Because even if yeah. there's not big cultural differences, your parents come from two different families with two different sets of traditions, and you still have to figure out who you are. Yeah, I mean, it's called Kubo and the Two Strings. And the, the two strings are monkey and beetle. And... Um, it's mom and dad, it's light and dark. And it's just so fundamental. To the it. strings are literally black and white. Right. <laughs> what, what, his mom's hair is black and the bowstring was white. By the way, my goodness, his mother's hair is really something. <laughs> so resonant. <laughs> it's really. He strikes great. that chord. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking if I pulled a, if I pulled a hair out of my wife's hair, she's got thick, thick Mexican, black Mexican hair. But man, I don't think you could string a guitar with it. <laughs> <laughs> or make a make a big bracelet but yeah. so for me the only thing um and i've only watched it once but i couldn't quite decide if i liked the resolution of the moon king where so much of this is about the power of story and how that keeps us connected 
and they tell him a story that is completely untrue about yes. who he is and he just accepts it and starts to follow it. And I, I was thinking about this uh, while I was driving over for the recording. I'm like, why, why is that bothering me? And I think it's because so much of the theme is about how storytelling is immortality and it's truth and it matters and it's significant and they're changing who he is through story. And so something felt off there. And I, I mean, I love this film. It's 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, I think we said. But if they had only even said something to him along the lines of, you, you used to be an angry, bitter man. And then something happened and we don't even know what it is, but you, you have become one of the most beloved people in the village. I think that for me would have felt rung more true. In my, my theory about this all being a dream is because that, that one part of the film has never set right for me. And as I'm watching it, I'm trying to resolve that in my head. Why did, why did these villagers do that? Why did they tell them these stories? Why did they treat it like this way? there must be something that I'm not seeing. And so that's where I created the whole uh, concocted reality of, Oh, this is all a dream. I'm glad that wasn't just me where that one thing was just kind of like, I, it just wasn't quite landing correctly in the, in the story. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a story about the power of story. And it seems like the message that they're saying at the end is just, just write the story, right? Like <laughs> it doesn't matter just if it's real news. It doesn't really matter if it's real news or fake news. As long as it tells the story that you want it to tell, then go ahead and tell it, right? It's because like the, you'll, the you'll family histories that talk about, uh, you know, your ancestor who was an entrepreneur when really he was a horse thief. <laughs> he was a yeah. self-made entrepreneur. <laughs> I mean, I think we, uh, people talk about that we're living in a in like a post-truth world, right? Where really the truth is just whatever you want it to be. And I feel like there's there's an interpretation of the story. There's a reading of the story that falls into that. And I don't like that. <laughs> like that yeah, version I of reality. I, I don't think I was there until this happened with the Moon King where the villagers all come and tell them, yes. oh, you're just the most beloved nice man. Well, I think it goes back to what Monkey was telling Kubo uh, when he was when she was telling him about the Moon King initially. And he's like, why does he hate me? Why does grandfather hate me? And she says, oh, Kubo, he doesn't hate you. He wants to make you just like him blind to humanity as I once was only then can you take your place beside him as part of his family, cold, hard, and perfect. And I think that, I think that the, the lesson that maybe they're trying to get across here is that everybody's the hero of their own story. Kubo's grandfather's not trying to destroy Kubo. Kubo's grandfather is trying to give him what he believes is perfection. And what ends up happening is Kubo and the villagers give grandfather what they see as perfection and who's right and who's wrong. We can't really tell between, between those stories. I mean, we're, we're kind of biased towards humanity. I don't know. I think I, I think <laughs> I'm biased against your daughters. Stealing children's eyes. <laughs> yeah. Like stealing children's eyes and killing your, your son-in-law and your daughter. But, um, if, you're, but if your child had a tumor that was uh, threatening threatening let's say the tumor was pressing apart against part of a brain that made the imagination made how you viewed the world skewed and you could remove that tumor would you do that but i don't think that's the story we have here right <laughs> with <laughs> the grandfather i'm just I mean, playing I'm devil's a, advocate that's no, all I'm, just I'm, reading, <laughs> I'm just reading this story and i'm saying <laughs> i don't i i mean of course, if you're in a if you're in a relativistic world where like whatever whatever you see is right or wrong is right or wrong, then 
whatever, then sure. If you're, if you're in the grandpa's place, then you're right. And who's to say that you're, that you're wrong, but I, I, I don't know. I don't choose to live in that world. <laughs> I think there are, I think there are like absolute rights and, and wrongs. And, and I think that Kubo is on the side of right in this story and that the grandpa is on the side of wrong, whether he thinks that or not. I mean, obviously he doesn't, I don't think he sees himself as a villain, but he's acting in villainous ways. I, I, I can buy that. I can buy that. Um, I wanted to make sure we spent a little time talking about Monkey and Beetle because I loved them so much. They're so good. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, if if my if my name is Beetle and you are Monkey, why is he not called Boy? Boy. <laughs> and then she just says, "Oh boy." <laughs> so do you feel? Do you think that Beetle falls into the into the like bumbling dad thing? That we've talked about before. Yeah. The, 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 the 80s, 90s sitcom dad. Right. Yeah. The, in, in some ways, in some ways he does. In other ways, he's very, he's very good at what he does. Like, yeah. Um, so he does have the bumbling Homer Simpson-esque kind of father at certain points. But when he, but to be honest, that's when he doesn't know that he's the father. Yeah. As soon as yeah. he knows like there's, he's there's dad, more, more reason for that than what we get in a lot of those. The, the I think that's what saves it is that it's justified. Like, I mean, he was brainwashed by the moon King and that's why he's acting in this way. It's not just because he's an idiot. It's because he had his mind taken away by the moon King. And even, and even given that he does some great stuff. I mean, he, he uses his agency in positive ways, like pro social ways. He's, he's trying to help. Yeah. He, even on limited capacity, he is, he's, He's doing the best that he can. Uh, uh, a couple couple weeks back, we did a Christmas uh, episode where we did a naughty and nice list on the fandom <laughs> podcast. And we had, I, I made a list of ambiguous characters and made the other guys tell me if they were naughty or nice. And we really, when we boiled down the morality, we said, okay, what you have to do is you have to take a look at the cards that were dealt to you and how you responded to them. Because, you know, look at The Walking Dead. Negan was dealt a set of cards and he's responding to them one way. And Rick was dealt a very similar set of cards and he's responding to them a completely different way. And that's how you can decide who is naughty and who is nice. Okay. So you would say he's on the uh, Beatles on the nice list. Beatles definitely on the nice list. He immediately wants to join the quest, even though he may die. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and he's, Uh, you know, he selflessly tries to sacrifice himself in a couple times and is conveniently saved. Oh, I've got wings now because the story says that I can't die yet. Uh, And I've got to say, I had no idea that Matthew McConaughey and Charlize Theron were such good voice actors. (laughs) Like they make both those characters work so well together. And Beetle is hilarious. And uh, Monkey is like, they're both real characters that are there. Um, Yeah. Beetle is more, comedy but he doesn't ever descend into the the one note parody of a, of a character that some kids animated films you know do for their side characters where it's like all you need to do is be a minion that speaks gobbledygook and you're gonna be funny and and kids will laugh at you um, banana yes in multiple languages uh and i also love monkey and i really love uh the voice performance that we got uh, for, for both those characters. Um, I, I just thought they, they completely nailed uh, these characters that as Brandon already kind of said, like you, they have to give a performance that's going to mean different things at different 
viewings, right? Um, they've got to give a performance that works when you think this is just a carved monkey that's come to life and a random beetle samurai. <laughs> and then you've got to get the same performance has to work for someone who's viewing it and knows that that's Kubo's father and Kubo's mother. And I think that is, um, a trickier performance than it may seem at face value. Can I tell you, it, it is so important that they ended up doing this extremely well because the biggest complaint about this movie that I saw anywhere had nothing to do with the story. It had to do with the fact that it was a Japanese story or story set in Japan. It's not a Japanese story. Mm-hmm. This is completely original, but a story set in Japan with all the Japanese trappings and the, and the cast, the voice acting cast were all Caucasian. With the right, exception the, the of three. a couple of vill- of a couple of villagers, right. Yeah. The the main three and the sisters, right. And uh, well, I guess even Ray Fiennes is the As, is is he the Moon King? Yeah, he Ray Fiennes is the Moon King. And so, I mean, you've got George Takei and Carrie. I always forget his last name. Tus Tuskawa. He's, uh, but he the they're they're both Japanese actors that are in there. There's a couple other. Uh, Asian actors in there as well. When I typed up, uh, when I pulled up the, you know, I just put in uh, Google and the Two cast. And yes, it's like the left side of the cast picture because yeah, it's just the scrolling on Google. And the left side, which was the main characters, was all Caucasian. And then as you scrolled, then it became all Asian and Asian American. Right. And they marketed this as having George Takei in it. And George <laughs> Takei is a villager who's in like three scenes. Yeah. And so the fact that they did a good job, I think, is it's saving grace. Because mm-hmm. ba- so if you talk to a Japanese person, they will they will say, oh, it's, it's no big deal at all. And when I say Japanese, I mean J- Japanese from Japan, because Japan is very homogenous in their culture. Japanese Americans have a little bit of a harder time with it because very often we get s- set into stereotypes. And I'm not helping the case at all because I'm a computer nerd and I, <laughs> you know, and I, I talk about comic books. I, I, I don't help the stereotype. However... <laughs> Uh, the Japanese people, Japanese American people very often feel like the, the Caucasians love to take the culture and take the stories and the underpinnings, but leave the people out, which is, which is what this felt like. However, the, you know, it was not a Japanese story and they treated the Japanese culture that they used in it with a lot of respect. You know, they, they could have, they could have done things, you know, caricatures of things and stereotypes, but no, they actually were celebrating Obon. The skeleton monster was an actual Japanese demon. The, they, they did things with a lot of respect and then the performances were amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I, I think that we'd be remiss if we went through the entire podcast without mentioning that, yeah. it, you know, this is, this is something that was an issue. However, there are other things to be much more up in arms about because of the, the respect and the quality that it is. So I have a question about um, Beetle and Monkey and this idea of um, she, so, so the mother being super protective and the father being kind of overconfident. And that's that's kind of at the heart of the argument that they're having is she's saying it's really dangerous. We shouldn't go across the the long lake. And he's saying, you don't understand how much power our son has. Uh, I mean, not our son, Kubo, who is their son. <laughs> you don't understand how much power he has. Um, you know, we should we should let him go. And I feel like so sometimes I wonder, is that a stereotype? And then I think about my own like my own marriage. <laughs> and I'm like, well, 
maybe we're like really stereotypical, but it's kind of how it breaks down <laughs> for us is my wife is super protective and I'm like, oh, come on, let him do it. It'll be great, you know? <laughs> and uh, anyway, I just wanted to see what you guys think about that. Do you, do you feel like that's a, like a, like painting with too broad a brush? I don't know. I've, I've never examined my marriage under that lens before, but I, I, th- I think it has to, it would have to revolve around the circumstances. Um, I grew up, I didn't grow up in a neighborhood. I grew up on old family farmland basically. And so my uh-huh. neighbors were my grandma and my dad's aunt and uncle. And so now that I live in a neighborhood, my kids want to go run four houses down to go to play with the neighbor. I'm like, all right, but I have to walk you down there. And my wife's like, um, no, they can just go run down there and we can see them from our front porch. And I'm like, okay, fine. But then other things I'm like, no, these, these kids, they, we got to let them make their decisions because they, they are capable of that. So I think it depends on the situation in my, in my marriage, okay. but I, I think it also is the archetype that they have because they made monkey the protector and they made, uh, they made Hanzo beetle the, the warrior. Yeah. And I, I mean, in my relationship, I know 100% there's some things where I'm weirdly overprotective and some things where my, I feel like my wife is more overprotective and we're each the other one, like, come on, let it go. <laughs> and it's like, no. um, but I immediately thought of um, Finding Nemo. The dad is super hyper overprotective. Uh-huh. And then um, the DreamWorks caveman movie, was it called? The Croods? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, I remember seeing that with my daughter and in that the dad is like, this is it's his fatal flaws that he's too overprotective and conservative okay. and just wants to keep things exactly how they were. So, I mean, that's only two counter examples. I'm sure yeah. there are many examples that do line up with exactly what you, you were describing. I of, um, Incredibles, which is, uh, kind of like that. I mean, that's kind of, I actually pictured in, that scene. This. I, I pictured the right. scene where, uh, Mr. Incredible, Mrs. Incredible were arguing in the living room during the scene where, he was like, you know, you don't understand how powerful he is. I'm like, oh, this right. is this is Incredibles. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, my one of my favorite quotes from the from the movie this time watching it is um, when she, he says, "This is a bad idea," and she says, "It's the best bad idea we have." And I just <laughs> like, <laughs> I, 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 I can see myself um, dipping back into this well. That feels like a very useful quote. <laughs> <laughs> yes it's it's kind of um a, a different version of uh perfect is the enemy of the good like, we don't have a perfect idea so we're gonna go with what we got yeah or um the one that i think about all the time is in um star trek uh, into darkness when he says i don't know what i'm supposed to do i only know what i can do and mm-hmm. I, I feel like this kind of falls in that same in that same vein of like you, we just have to keep moving forward these are all of all of the ideas that we have are out on the table None of them look great. So we'll take this one and run with it. And I think that sometimes, yeah, it's the best bad idea. But I think sometimes the best bad idea is, is really necessary and more, more than we, than we want to admit. I I think especially, um, I think that resonates when there's so much uh, information and choice available to everyone today, you know, more so than at any point in history, you could, you could freeze yourself by debating every single idea and debating, um, you know, or, or, or like intellectually exploring all the options that are before you just because we have more choices and, and there is more information that could be garnered, but sometimes you just got to take the act, <laughs> you know, do, do the action um, and, and progress instead of, um, you know, uh, having hit a plateau where you just are where you are. 
Yeah. Well, any other characters that I want to make sure we touched on, guys? So the the very last thing that I wanted to touch on, which is something that I saw again in this issue, is, and maybe it's just because we're coming through the holiday season. Did anyone else feel like it was how the Grinch stole Christmas at the very end when the Moon King was saying, but I've taken everything from you. How can you be happy? How can you still <laughs> want to be human? That's awesome. And then, and then the Moon King's heart grows three times. <laughs> or at least they, they trick him into thinking it has. <laughs> yeah, they trick him. Uh, that's cool. I hadn't thought about that. I I really when you started, great, um, once you started to say it, I was like, "Oh, I know where he's going." <laughs> yeah, I read a great essay about the Grinches uh, about the Grinch still Christmas that was touching on that uh, at the end of the year. Oh, that's a man, that's a good story. <laughs> I have I have two thoughts to finish up. One is, um, I think the way that they the way that they use uh, paper in the story is fascinating on a million different levels but just the beauty of the the origami and the design uh but also symbolically what paper is how kind of um how fragile it is and at the same time how um like how how powerful it can be and uh and using the paper as a metaphor for the mind um I think is it could be there's a, a lot of really interesting things to dig in on that, and then the last thing is, um, so it ended, and my daughter looks up at me and she says, "So is Kubo alone?" And I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's like the most important question <laughs> that you could ask with this film." And um, I mean, she that's what the whole end of this thing is about is, and the answer is yes and no, <laughs> and. And that's what I mean. That's that's life. I think is are are we alone? Yes, we're all alone. Like Levinas says, we are all like by definition, we are all alone. We're all locked in our minds, and there's no way out. <laughs> and we are born alone, and we die alone, and and existence is lonely. And yet, we're surrounded by people, and 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 we're born with people, and if we're lucky, we die with people, and. And it's all about connection and community and the protection that comes from that and ancestors. And it's awesome. Well, the, the last time that I was on here and we were talking about Momotaro and the very ending of Momotaro, he goes home and he goes and lives with his parents again and his village. And we talked a lot about Western versus Eastern fairy tales and the endings and going off and striking it on your own versus coming back to the home that you had. And the, and in Kubo, he, he goes back to the same village that he came from. At the end of the movie, he's back to where he started. And the uh, Kameo, she, you know, she told the Moon King, we have something in common. We both love your grandson. And I think that, I, th I think that this is another way in which this story, we walked out of this, we walked out of the movie theater with my parents. And I turned to my dad and I said, I don't know any Japanese story that had this there were elements from different japanese stories that we caught but it felt very japanese and i think this ending is part of that because i felt the exact opposite at the end of the movie i felt he's not alone his parents will always be there for him even if they are not there and then he has that entire village that loves and adores him and he has now his grandpa who he is going to be helping to understand it helped teach him what humanity is and so i i read that very differently than you did 
Cool. And I'm not uh, saying I'm not saying that that I like I'm not all down because I think Kubo is alone. I, I think what I'm saying is he, he he's alone in a way that he hasn't been before. He doesn't have his mother with him. He doesn't have his father with him in the way that in the way that we would think that that they would be right. This is, doesn't look like a happily ever after like we're like we're accustomed to. And in that sense, he feels alone. Right. Like he's not that it's not the three strings. It's just it's just Kubo by himself with a you know, force ghost mom and dad. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, but at the same time, I, I'm absolutely in agreement with you that he doesn't feel alone to me at all because he's surrounded by all these people who love him. And he's come back. Uh, I mean, he's come back home and there is a home for him there, even though his mom and dad are only force ghosts. So I think we're I think we're on the same page. I, I just I maybe I didn't uh, explain what I was. OK. All right. Exactly right. As long as we're talking this, about Hero's Journey, we got to bring up Star Wars, right? Yes. Well, yeah, you really as can. long as we're talking about anything, we have to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> I'll just have to say um, as a plug for your patron, uh, yours was the first disagreement with The Last Jedi that I heard that actually had reasons behind it. Oh. <laughs> so, I really enjoyed listening to that. I'm glad that you oh, did. Thank you. I just wanted to say when you were talking about the loneliness and the, and the connection, I saw a tweet that went viral over the holidays where someone had said ah some time alone with me and my thoughts oh oh the loneliness the shallowness where are my podcasts i must listen to podcasts <laughs> we're always there for you <laughs> and so please enjoy uh the back catalog of the protagonist <laughs> podcast and the fandom podcast if you ever feel alone awesome i think that's all i've got that's all I had. Anything you wanted to add, Brandon? Any uh, plugs for where people can find the Fandom Podcast? So you can head over to fandompodcast.com and we that just pretty much has our main episodes coming through. If you go to fandompodcast.com slash protagonist, all of these guys have been on, on the show before. And so you will be able to, it got links to the episodes where they have been specifically on there. And uh, we love to have you guys on. I think we have scheduled to get Nick and uh, Jeff, your co-hosts, back on to our podcast in the next few months as well. Oh, and I just want to say one last thing about Kubo and the Two Strings. We kind of hinted at, excuse me, hinted at it a few times, but the animation of this is stunning. Oh my God. <laughs> Stop motion is unlike any other kind of filmmaking that's out there. And it's um, it. it it's followed so far out of style that we just don't see it very often. And to just sit there and watch and think about how they did that. It's just, it, it, it there's a magic to it that I think um, CGI has removed in a lot of ways um, with filmmaking. So often now we see films and stunning things happen and we just say, Oh, CGI. But knowing that this was stop motion, I was sitting there thinking about the, the craft and artistry um, in a way that I think we've kind of lost in the 2000s for filmmaking because we just always assume, oh, CGI. You want to hear something crazy? Kubo, his face is made out of two different pieces and they are interchangeable pieces. There are over 48 million facial expressions on Kubo alone. Oh my God. <laughs> this this is one i agree with your daughter you have to watch the special features on this one yeah uh even if you just pull them up on youtube because they have this whole wall of shelves with kubo faces with kubo parts wow. where they pick the the face for what they are doing it's insane it is just insane yeah because I remember growing up, uh, you know, I was born in 82, but I remember like when I really got into film in the 90s, I love special features because it's always about the movie magic. But really from like 2000 on, a lot of the movie magic, we just say, oh, computers. 
but this and another one that does this still for me is Muppets. Like I, I watch Muppets and I sit there and think, how are they doing this? And, <laughs> like, and I think about like the set structure that they had to build to get the Muppets where they're at and, you know, and, and, and everything. And to have films that still like in some ways, maybe it's nostalgic, but it returns me to that. Oh, there, there's real magic that happens in making films. And, and that's not in any way trying to knock CGI, um, and, and computer effects and what those do because they can make stunning visuals. But in in some ways, it, it makes me stop wondering how did they do that because I just assume green screen or blue screen and, and inside of a computer is how they did that. Well, and this, and this film uses a lot of green screen, blue screen and digital touch ups. In the background. Yeah, because there's digital backgrounds. Definitely. Um, I have seen enough uh, of the background images that they, you know, the uh, the the background will be a giant, you know, the green screen so they can add stuff. But the, there's just a stunning artistry in how the story is being told. I feel like this movie, you need to like sit down and watch it, not kind of have it on in the background at least once. You need, you need to just sit down and watch this film and, and let the beauty kind of wash over you. Cause it is, I agree. It's stunning. It's so well done. You know, and the, and the stop motion makes a lot of sense because Travis Knight, if you, I saw an interview with him where he mentioned that there, the one of the main movies that got him into filmmaking was Jason and the Argonauts, and he specifically oh. was talking about the stop Harry House, Harry House, and all the all the Harry House yeah. stuff was just it, it really got him going into it, and so of course he's going to start doing a lot of stop motion animation, and I'm glad he is. I, I, it's an artistry that I is that the, I wish is the Bumblebee movie is the Bumblebee movie uh, stop motion. <laughs> it is not. His uh, Travis Knight is <laughs> has moved on from uh, Kubo and the Two Strings. His next film is the Transformers spinoff Bumblebee, set in the 1990s. I think oh, it's really? a period piece, guys, <laughs> in the 90s about Bumblebee, uh, oh, <laughs> and he that, oh. he's he's doing his first live action directing with that. It was my uh, number. What do I, I think that number 41 pick. <laughs> and our fantasy box office 2018 wow. pulling for travis knight well i think that is going to wrap up this episode thank you for joining us brandon uh and thank you for listening listeners for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows you can go to duelinggenre.com also please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review that really helps us out we would like to thank nick english who designed our logo and you can hear him every week over on the fandom podcast actually multiple times a week now you guys have split the way you are doing uh, your podcast correct twice weekly the first episode is of the week is news and the second episode is a discussion and uh, so we want to thank Nick for designing our logo. And we also want to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go back and check episodes in which we had Brandon. We had him on for a discussion of Hook and Momotaro. Is that correct, Brandon? That is correct. All right. Uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow Protagonist Pod, Todd K. Mack, Jay Dorowski, our producer, Andrew, is at DizMinute. And Brandon, does Fandom Podcast have a Twitter handle? We are at FandomCast on Twitter, and we're starting to use that a little more. And we're at Facebook.com slash FandomPodcast. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have really great conversations there with our listeners and we love any comments and feedback that we get. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Farewell.
All right, but I, I, I guess before we even uh, get into that, though, well, actually, let's let's just. All right, Andrew, cut. Here's a fresh <laughs> transition for you. 